The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Let's give attention to God's word looking at Psalm 25. And this is a psalm it's actually a acrostic uh, psalm where each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 verses, although this acrostic does deviate in a couple little places. But for the most part, it is a true acrostic psalm. And it's really a pretty amazing piece of literature. It's a, it's a chiastic psalm. And so it begins with the difficulties of waiting. And waiting is mentioned three times uh, in this psalm. As you'll see, the beginning in verse 3, talking about none who wait for you. Verse 5, I wait for you all the day long. And then verse 21, he ends with, I wait, I'm waiting for you to redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. So this is the context of waiting in this chiasm. But, and then it's also shame dealing with issues of shame, and then dealing with our enemies. And these are, Psalm 25 is kind of a picture of like all the Psalms, there's, there's pieces, and there's something in here for each of us. Because what this Psalm is about is petitions, teaching us how to pray. So most of the Psalm is petitions, but the petitions are mingled with the promises of God. And so it'll go back and forth between petitions and then God's promises. And, but then we're also, in the midst of petitions, we're seeing all the problems. And a bunch of the problems will be laid out as we go. Needing guidance, dealing with issues of guilt and sin. And then loneliness and affliction and troubles of our heart being enlarged. So let's listen carefully to what the Lord has for us. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you're the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of, of, from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. 
The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would use this psalm this morning to teach us how to pray. We pray that we wouldn't want just guidance, but we'd want you to be our guide and that you would walk with us and show us your goodness afresh. Would you increase our faith, Lord, as we wait upon you? Many of, the, many of us are waiting, Lord, for you to break through in clouds of disappointment. And we ask that you would strengthen your people. I ask that, Lord, you would fill us with your spirit, that we would hear what the spirit is saying to the church. I ask that, Lord, you would use me for your purposes. Speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot here in this text, and I think maybe it might be helpful if I start with an illustration. Years ago, I was uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. I've only been there once. It's this really cool town, and obviously Princeton is there. And I was having lunch with a friend, and it was actually a minister. I was actually doing his ordination service, and we were enjoying this lunch together, and somehow we got talking about Jonathan Edwards, and, and he was, t- you know, I knew that he was in Princeton, and he's saying, he's buried right over here behind us in the cemetery, and I'm like, you're kidding, Jonathan Edwards is buried, we have to go, we have to go see his tombstone, and so after our lunch, we proceeded to go that direction, and as we were walking up the sidewalk, um, it looked like a seminary student was coming down the way, and I just took a stab, and I said, hey, excuse me, I said, you wouldn't happen to know where Jonathan Edwards' tombstone, I mean, it's a huge cemetery, and he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, anyone who wants to see Jonathan Edwards' tombstone, I will take you there myself, and he walked with us over there, and he led us to Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Edwards, And you see, what I was asking for was some direction. I was asking for a little guidance. And what I got was a guide. I got a lot more than actually what I had asked for. That's like this psalm. Like so often we come to God and all we want is just, I want to know God's will for my life. I got some big decisions I got to make. Whether I'm going to stay with this job, whether I'm going to take this promotion, whether I should retire, what college I'm going to go to, whether I'm going to play this certain sport next quarter. You know, we have all these decisions. And so often what we want is we just want a little bit of fortune telling. We just want God, you know, just, I just want to ask Jeeves. I want to just roll something out there and roll the little eight ball thing. And just, I just want a little guidance. And God shows up and he, and he actually wants to give us a lot more than just a little guidance. He wants to be our guide. And what the psalmist wrestles with through this psalm is it's really all about guidance. 
So much of the psalm is, how do I know God's will for my life? And the answer is, is you pray to know God. And so, as Spurgeon calls the three, the three classes in the school of grace, he calls the three classes in the school of grace, verse 4 and verse 5. Make me, teach me, lead me. <laughs> that's that's the, ones, the one class, the second class, and the third class. Show me to know your ways or make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. So it starts with us praying that, Lord, we would know you. We would know your paths. And the idea here is also, uh, lead me in your truth could be better translated, lead me in your faithfulness. And the idea, I think, is not only do I want to know your precepts, I also want to understand your providence. God has providential ways of so many things that we do not understand. How do we understand this week that Margaret is still with us and Dave is not? Dave wasn't wanting to go and Margaret is dying to go. And yet God in his providence has other reasons that Margaret is still here and Dave is is not. Lead me in your faithfulness. Show me your ways, Lord. Help me to understand your providential ways and your precepts, your word. And then he digs into the promises. He takes these very prayers that he's praying in verse 4 and 5. But then when you look at 8, 9, and 10, as he goes back and forth between, you know, a prayer to a promise. And then the promise is he leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. You see, God, these are conditional promises. And so on the one hand, it seems kind of terrifying that, you know, he talks about, if you look at verses 12 to 14 and you think, man, who qualifies for this? You know, who is the man who fears the Lord? And then we have these great promises that the one who fears the Lord, he promises to instruct him. He promises that his soul shall abide in well-being. He shall experience, you know, the shalom of God. His offspring are going to inherit the land and the friendship of the Lord. Or, or literally, this is the same word that's used in Psalm 55 when David is talking about the one who's lifted up his heel against me and how we took sweet counsel together. This sweet counsel together is the same word here, this Hebrew word sowed, the friendship of the Lord. It's this, it's this uh, intimate word of counsel, of friendship. He's with the, and, and, but a couple of times it says it's with him, those who fear him. And so on the one hand, you know, it's like, okay, do I fear him? I mean, do I fear him enough? <laughs> You know, how does this work itself out? And I think you, you want to strike kind of the balance here. On the one hand, I think too many times we want to take the fear out of fear. You know, like, like we want to try and say, well, it really means trust. It really means submit. It really means, you know, worshipfully obey him. It does mean all those things. But let's not forget what Lewis, how he described the great quote where Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a mere man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So we are to this idea of being inclined towards him, loving him, but then there is also this fear that he is the king and that we have violated his covenant, his precepts, his will. None of us is righteous, no, not one. And so when he does come to him in prayer, so much of what he is wrestling with, David, is his own sin. I mean, you can't get away from the issues that are wrestling with sin here. And so the good news, though, is when he, he leads the humble, verse 9, he teaches the humble. He, here's the promise to those, you know, back to verse 5 of lead me. And he's, okay, he will lead the humble, he will teach the humble. And who does he instruct in verse 8? He instructs sinners. Hey, we qualify, okay? Because none of us is righteous, no, not one. He instructs sinners. Do you want to know the will of God? Do you want to know his heart? God loves to meet with the humble. And the humble are people who repent of their goodness. I mean, it's one thing to repent of your badness, say, yeah, I screwed up. But what about all the things we did that were good, that we want everybody to notice and just think that, hey, this makes me somehow look a little better in the eyes of people, in the eyes of God. The truly righteous people, the humble people, they repent of their goodness. They see that as often their biggest barrier between them and God is their damnable good works, right? Isn't Paul saying that he considered all those things rubbish so that he could gain Christ, to gain the righteousness of Christ? It's not about our own righteousness. So there should be this humility that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost, we are chief. And so the righteous people and the humble people, they don't say things like, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve what is happening to me. You know, the humble says just the opposite. I deserve far worse. I always deserve far worse because I deserve the pit of hell and I've been saved from that. And so God delights to show his heart to, to this sweet counsel, this friendship with those who fear him. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, how do I know what God's will is for my life? Make me to know your ways. Teach me and lead me. And what we see in this passage is there's a lot of problems. And we have a lot of problems in this life. First of all, there's waiting. As was mentioned at the beginning, and so many of us are waiting for different things, waiting for COVID to be over, waiting so that we can start things back up again. We've, we've delayed with starting off Sunday school. We delayed the men's study. Now the ladies' study is going by Zoom, and these are just little things in the church, but some of us are waiting for some really big things. I mean, you know, Suzanne has wanted to, to lay her dad to rest and have a memorial service. We've postponed that because of COVID. That was supposed to be this Saturday. It's been a year that she hasn't had closure. So her and Judy are still waiting to have that service. There are difficult things that we're waiting for. Some of you waiting for a spouse or waiting for children or waiting for a boss to retire that persecutes you. <laughs> These things happen. And so we have this waiting, but then we have this issue of shame. <clears throat> and so much of the Psalms are wrestling with this idea of, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. 
Do you see that, how the, the psalm begins with that and ends with that? It begins with, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. And then you have the great promise of verse 3. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed or wantonly treacherous. But let me not be put to shame. And then the psalm ends with verse 20 or 19. Look, consider how many and, and what violent hatred they hate me. These foes, so here we have these enemies again. He's saying, guard my soul, deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. What does that mean? Well, let me give you two examples. There's lots of them in Scripture. Where people go public for their faith. They step out. Moses gets a call from God to go and set my people free. And so Moses and Aaron, they go and tell the elders of Israel and Israel that God has called me to deliver you. And I am going to, you know, be used by God to deliver the people. And I've got, you know, he's going to deliver you out of bondage. And he, it's going to happen. And everybody is just worshiping and great. And now we're going to go to Pharaoh and we're going to tell him. And so Moses goes public with his faith. And he talks to Pharaoh and he tells him, let my people go. The Lord says, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord? I don't know who Yahweh is. And I certainly am not. And who are you? And I'm not going to listen to you. Matter of fact, you guys have too much time on your hands. You've been singing that stick song too many times. You've got too much time on your hands. I'm going to do something. I'm going to remove the straw and give you more brick. Same amount of bricks, no straw. Go get the straw yourself. And so what happens to the people at the end of the day? They don't have the same amount of, of work of, that they brought in of the bricks because they have to go get the straw. And then the people are beaten. The foremans are beaten. And they go to Moses and they cry out to him and they say, you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. See, we're now full of shame. And the enemies are exalting over us. So Moses goes to God, and what does Moses say? You haven't delivered your people at all. Where are you, God, in the midst of this? There's shame. Because now Moses is, is feeling the shame of all the people that are upset at him. And the people of God are being persecuted. Oh, God, show up and let not my enemies exalt over me. One area where I felt this acutely, and some of you, live, we, we lived this together some years ago, but we were trying to drive out late-term abortionist Leroy Carhartt out of Germantown. And so seeing that these babies that would fully form babies that would be viable in the NICU were being killed, often for five-figure numbers, over $10,000 to do this. He's getting rich and he's killing babies that are viable in the NICU. And one woman was killed. We saw at least seven times where the, the ER, EMT would come and take ladies to the emergency room, to the hospital. The county and the state do see no evil, hear no evil. They don't want anything to do with it. And so what do we do is we're crying out for God to rid us of this scourge in the town. And so this crazy idea is born of where I offered the abortionist. It was kind of crazy thinking about it. I had no money. 
But I said, we'll, we'll, we'll pay for these two abortion clinics to close, thinking that we'd leave Leroy Carhartt homeless. And so we paid a, a lot of money, $1.2 million, to pay for the building and close two businesses. And one guy purchased the building himself. Half the money came from the Protestant community, half came from the Catholic community. And we were, yes. We have shut down these two abortion clinics. We, we have done it. We are, aren't we special? One month later, we paid $1.2 million for a month of no abortions. And there's no resolve. And Carhartt gets a lot of help from NARAL, who knows who others. And he's in Bethesda, and he's still doing this ghastly late-term abortions even closer to our nation's capital. And I remember when this whole thing kind of went down and they had a prayer gathering and, and you know, it was kind of like the news came and I was there and I shared Psalm 8 and prayed and then Channel 7 was in my face with a microphone and said, basically, what now of your scheme? You know, you paid this money, don't you realize now what a fool you were that he's now in business? And I feel this sense of like shame. Enemies exalting. Somebody from our church sent me an email, and I'll never forget it. It said, basically, what we did was a Hail Mary. And before you lose all credibility with the church, why don't you just stick to ministering in the church? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> and that was painful. And I don't have this wonderful resolve to tell you. But I do know that verse 3 is true. That in the big picture, we know that none who wait for you shall be put to shame. And they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. God will write the scales. It just may not happen in this life. And there are certain things that aren't going to be righted in this lifetime. And we do pray, verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. I mean, that's the, the longing, this groaning for redemption. The redemption of our bodies and creation is groaning and waiting for us to be redeemed so it can be redeemed. And this whole earth will be redeemed so that the blessings will flow far as the curse is found. And as we just sang about, that the blessings will be more than the ones we lost from the curse from Adam. Do you believe that will happen? So God's people keep praying. And I'm sure you can identify with things where you've gone on record with something. You step out for something. And then you get thrown under the bus at work. And now you're feeling the shame. Keep praying. Keep pleading. But notice as we come to God, what do we remember? We do the threefold remembrance in verse 6 and 7. Remember your mercy. Remember not the sins of my youth, according to your steadfast love, remember me. And when, when, he, when he's saying remember, it's not like he's saying, you know, like we sing to, to Santa Claus, you know, be good for goodness sake. It's nothing about that. It's nothing about his goodness that he's asking God to remember. He's asking God to remember his goodness and his faithfulness. That God is the one who walked between the pieces when he made a covenant with Abraham saying, let the curse fall upon me if these things aren't true. And God made promises to Abraham. I promise you that there will be a son and there will be someone that through all the families of the earth will be blessed through this son. 
I promise, and I walk between the pieces if it's not going to happen. And I promise that I will give you this land. And now we see the land is the whole earth, and the meek will inherit the earth, and there will be this seed, and the seed has come, and the seed is Jesus, and the families of the earth are starting to be blessed all around the world. And God is still remembering his covenant. And when we confess our sins, what are we, when we acknowledge that we're undone, Notice what the psalmist says in verse 11. He doesn't say, pardon my guilt for it's a little one. Pardon my guilt, it's, it's a light one. It's not little or light. Literally, it's immense. Pardon my guilt, it is great. We have all sinned great sins against a great God. But praise God, He forgives our sins when we come in Jesus' name, because Jesus experienced the fullness of the difficulties that this psalmist is praying through. You think about shame. You think about enemies exalting. Jesus experienced, in the short term, enemies exalting over him. People crying out for him to come, come down from that cross. And there he's naked and ashamed, taking all of our guilt and our punishment. And as Psalm 69 says, you might want to just turn now, read you a couple of verses from Psalm 69, which is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. And it says in verse 7 through 9 of Psalm 69, For it is your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. There are direct fulfillments in the New Testament of all three of those quotes. I become a stranger to my brothers and John. Zeal for your houses consume me, John 2, and the reproaches of those who've fallen on me, Romans 15. It's all about Jesus. This is Jesus who has experienced the dishonor. He's experienced the reproaches have all fallen on him. That's why he came and went to a cross to take our sin, to pardon our guilt, although it is great. And so now we have this privilege to know this great God of the universe, to not just have a little guidance, but actually have a guide who walks with us in this life. And so then we can say, Lord, turn to me and be gracious to me, verse 16. And and then the petitions are great from 16 to 22. Turn to me, be gracious to me. I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins, consider how many are my foes and with what hatred they hate me. Guard my soul, deliver me. In the midst of our trials, we pray these petitions. It reminds me of the, the funny, there's a couple of funny far side comics for the one where there's a guy looking through a scope at a deer and the deer is, you know, the scope is right on him. But he's pointing to his friend, the deer next to him, and saying, you know, shoot him. And then there's another one where the poor deer has a bullseye right on his chest. And the other deer says, bummer of a birthmark. And sometimes you feel like you're the bullseye and you're the deer. And everybody's looking at you through a scope. And they're waiting for you to screw up. They're looking for you to fail. They're waiting for you to mess up so that they can pull the trigger. And you, you feel this. 
And that's what the psalmist is feeling. My troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction, my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes with what violent hatred they hate me. He's feeling ostracized. He's feeling lonely. He's feeling afflicted. And yet in the midst of this, he's finding refuge in the Lord. Notice the I statements in this psalm. There's a few wonderful I statements. When he goes to the personal pronoun of I, and it begins with, I lift up my soul. In you, I trust. And in verse 21, I wait for you. You see, he's, he's, he's lonely and afflicted. That's another I statement of verse 16. But yet in the midst of being lonely and afflicted, he doesn't run away from God. He's running to God. How about you this morning? I mean, when, when you're dealing with your shame, your guilt, your enemies, your foes, your troubles, your affliction, your sin, your guilt, I mean, there's just a crescendo of problems that come with this life. Where do you go with those? You know, Matthew Henry put it like this. He said, prayer is the ascent of the soul to God. God must be eyed and the soul employed. True prayer may be described as the soul rising from earth to have fellowship with heaven. It is the journey upon Jacob's ladder. Sadly, though, too often we feel like the mole rather than the eagle and that our prayers are digging us a hole and we're not elevated with lofty thoughts of God. Do you ever feel more like the mole than the eagle in your prayers? But notice that the prayers here are Godward. And they're, they're asking God, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. You can tell when you read this psalm that the psalmist doesn't just want deliverance. He wants the deliverer. He wants God himself. And if you notice the reflection quote in your bulletin, I think as we're facing trials and temptations that come with waiting. Waiting is it's a really interesting thing in Scripture as we see this was the difference between David and Saul, was it not? I mean, David had all kinds of opportunities to take Saul's life, and yet he would not strike the Lord's anointed. And even when he came into the cave and all his men were saying, this is it, this is the will of the Lord, take him out, he wouldn't strike the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't get ahead of God. And for Sarah and Abraham, who were promised this child, and Sarah thought she could help God out of a pinch because he really was kind of slow in delivering on the promise. So she brings Hagar to, to Abraham and says, I think this will help, this will work. You know, we'll, we'll make this promise of God come about. And Adam took her, or Abraham took her. It's actually the same Verbs that's used in Genesis 3 of taking of the fruit and giving to her husband. She took Hagar and gave him to Abram. It's the same too, took and gave. And Abram was just like Adam, happy to partake of the forbidden fruit. And he sleeps with Hagar. And now she, there, there is just war in the home. And what does Abram say? She's your servant and your power do to her what you please. I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> How'd that work? Not good. They couldn't wait. 
We're not good at waiting. What do we do when we're in the midst of waiting? Look what this reflection quote says by John Calvin. He says, I have no hesitation in referring the prayer to this circumstance, namely that God, afraid of yielding to the feeling of impatience or the desire of revenge or some extravagant or unlawful impulse, asks that the promises of God may be deeply impressed and engraven on his heart. For I've said before that as long as this thought prevails in our minds, that God takes care of us, it is the best and most powerful means for resisting temptations. Notice some of the songs we were singing this morning about the goodness of God, and you are good, good. And we're just trying to pump that into our minds again and again, because what do we need to believe in the midst of temptation? That God is good, that he's good. So we don't become like Saul, thinking God hasn't shown up. He hasn't arrived. There is no Samuel. The enemies are coming. Our people are scattering. And I forced myself to just make the sacrifice. No more kingship for Saul because he wanted to do it his way. You see, God has plans for us in this waiting period. Spurgeon referred to, to patience as the fair, um, how did he put it? The fair handmaiden of faith, patience. God has plans for us in the midst of that. And so we have to lean on the Lord and not turn to sinful devices. Calvin, once again, he says this. He says, as often then as any temptation may, may assail us, we ought always to pray to God, that God would make the light of his truth to shine upon us, lest having recourse to sinful desires, we should go astray and wander into devious and forbidden paths. Asking God, show your light upon us. Don't let me run to these other things to get ahead of you. Well, I hope you found something here for your soul this morning. What we see is the psalmist. David, his problems weren't just outside, they weren't just inside, they were both. They were just as like the Just As I Am song talks about, that I'm tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without. That's what you have in this chapter. And yet, O Lamb of God, I come. O Lamb of God, I come. Because this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide, even to the end. He doesn't want to just give you guidance, he wants to be your guide to walk with you through all the trials and difficulties of this life and that we would honor him through it. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you our burdens. We give you our sin, for it is great. Lord, we want so much to figure it out ourselves, to come up with our own home remedies, the DIY, to do it yourself. We want to fix it. And there's no fixing the problem of sin. We're undone. We thank you for Jesus who hung on a cross for three hours and said it is finished and that our sins have been paid in full. Lord God, you have called us to rest in you and repentance and rest is our salvation 
And yet in Isaiah, the people would have none of it. Lord God, forgive us, for we're so quick to want to run. Help us to embrace and to lean into the awkward situations that we've been placed in in this life, even this very week. We pray that we would lean on you and that we lean not on our own understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.